Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Nick Pollock cannot be with us tonight, so we decided to get a murderer's row of Roar Lions, Roar staff members to talk about Penn State beating Michigan State 45-12 to to advance to the Big Ten Championship game. We're going to talk about that game. We're going to talk about uh, some of the goings-on in the Big Ten this weekend. Uh, we are going to spend a lot of time making fun of Jim Harbaugh, which... It, like, that's the hook to get you listening to the rest of this podcast. Awesome. And then we're also just going to talk about this week how we feel about how Penn State is positioned, one, uh, for the Big Ten Championship game against a tough Wisconsin squad, and in the playoff hunt. So should be a good edition of the pod, and I will be joined on it first by Mr. Dan Smith. Dan, how you doing? Thank you for rewarding me with uh, this guest appearance on the podcast uh, entirely because I worked a John Donovan joke into a basketball podcast. I thought that was very nice of you to, uh, to springboard that. Yeah, sure. That was, uh, that was why we did it. Uh, yeah. Dan uh, was unable to watch. Uh, did, did you watch the, not get a chance to watch the entire Ohio state Michigan game because of pep boys, or did you get a chance to watch the whole thing? My roommate got a flat tire, so I had to um, go pick him up from the uh, yeah from Pep Boys. Um, but and then it missed the sequence where Spate uh, threw the interception, and then uh, subsequently Ohio State got some extra yards due to uh, misbehavior by uh, the disgraced head coach of Michigan, Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah, so we will certainly spend a lot of time making fun of him a little bit farther down the line. Uh, but also want to introduce onto this podcast Mr. Len D'Amico. Len, how you doing? I am well, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Well, not as good now because I have to introduce Matt, but yeah, Matt's here. <laughs> Hello, Bill. It's it's always great to talk to you on, on the podcast. Yeah, I know. I, I You know the opportunity was right there, Matt, and I just had to take it. Uh, speaking of taking opportunities, uh, Penn State. Sometime in the first quarter, uh, found out that Ohio State was able to beat Michigan uh, by a final score of 30-27 to in double overtime. Uh, the Nittany Lions then took care of business against Michigan State, really just in the second half, ran the Spartans off the field. But I want to start with the first half. I ended up getting there a little bit late, so I didn't really watch Damian Terry uh, play quarterback against the Nittany Lions. Uh, but Matt, to start with you, it seemed like in that first half, Michigan State was able to do some things with Terry in the game. What was was it a night and day thing when Terry came out and when Terry was in there in terms of how the Spartan offense looked? I don't think it was that dramatic. Um, I think probably the bigger loss, in my opinion, was LJ Scott. Um, who was kind of in and out after doing something to his knee. He had that giant brace that he put ended up putting on at some point. I think it was during the first half. Um, but losing Terry totally changed what Michigan State was trying to do on offense. Um, you know, we've talked about it a ton over the course of the season that Michigan State's quarterback play has been a huge reason why they're you know sitting at three and nine now and done for the year. Um, so you know, Terry really played well. Um, I think he allowed them to do some different things offensively. Um, forced Penn State to respect the passing game a little bit more than they probably were anticipating. Um, I, I felt like, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit you know, further down in the podcast here, but it felt like Penn State was not playing poorly necessarily, but they were just kind of you know, a half step out or just a little out of sorts early on 
Um, and they did they did enough in the first half, um, you know, even the first you know, 20, 25 minutes, just to kind of keep it close and not not let it get to the point where it was going to become a two or three score game. Um, but I, it was just it was kind of a weird first thirty minutes for me until they finally found something that worked and got that first touchdown drive to to get it to I think that made it ten nine or twelve ten or whatever it was at that point. Um, but it was just it, like you said, it was frustrating, but it wasn't you know, alarm bells going off and, you know, oh shit, we're not going to be able to, to, to pull this off and, and we're not going to be going to Indy this weekend. Yeah, uh, Penn State's first touchdown, well, the first touchdown of the game uh, came at the 214 mark of the second quarter, uh, make it 10-9. Uh, so, when uh, kind of want to ask you a question. We talked about this a bit last week, uh, and it was obviously a bit different because Penn State took a close game into the half against Rutgers. Um, but, in this one, going into the locker room, it's a 12-10 game. Michigan State is ahead. How did you feel going into the second half? Were you maybe getting a little concerned and thinking that, you know, this team was setting its sights on India a bit too much and that kind of uh, came back to bite them in the ass on uh, on Saturday? I didn't get that feeling at all. At, at no point did I honestly feel that there was any jeopardy of Penn State losing this game just because we've seen it so many times, week in and week out. That's I don't know if it's sloppiness. I don't think it's lack of focus. I don't feel like they were looking ahead, but you know, as as Matt just said, it was just they were just a step off, a, a step late here, early there, and they there was no point in the at any point in the game where it felt like they were not going to figure it out in the second half and turn it around. Interesting. Uh, Dan, kind of the same question uh, to you, because I, I think you were the person who basically said uh, about Rutgers, you know, if you just take off, you know, the whole quote unquote rivalry game thing, and you look at how this team is, this is a really bad football team. And that kind of, that applied to Michigan state also, we went in thinking, you know, Michigan State, uh, it has this reputation about it. We're used to them being a really good team. But when you look at them from the perspective of what they are this year and not what they were in the past, this is not a good football team. So what were your thoughts uh, getting into halftime? It's 12-10. You know, Penn State hasn't been able to run the ball. Passing game hasn't really gotten going yet, all that. The only thing about the first half that I thought was – surprising or in any way alarming would have been the matchup between Michigan State's offensive line and Penn State's defensive line. They controlled things there for a significant stretch. I mean, it was their four first half possessions. And that's part of the reason that I didn't feel bad was the fact that Penn State just didn't have the ball that much in the first half. You know, they had two, three and outs to start the game. Looked a little shaky. Derek Dowry was in at left guard. They made the switch. They brought Steven Gonzalez in at left guard, and he played the rest of the game there until garbage time. And I don't know if that had that significant of an impact, but when he got in there, they scored on the next two drives. But they really only had four possessions in the first half. Michigan State had four. Penn State had four plus the one snap at the end of the half where they took the knee. Um, So it was one of those things where if Michigan State had – cashed in a touchdown or two on those sustained drives that they had, I would have felt a little worse because you're going, yeah, I mean, Penn State's going to come back. They're a second-half team, but you know, Michigan State's you know, made it difficult. When they just kept settling for field goals, I'm going, you know, this is, you know, Penn State 
it's going to turn it around. You know, they're a second half team. When you look at it through that lens, I, I really just was never that threatened by them because they just never were able to take advantage of those sustained possessions. Um, so, you know, I, going into the second half, I felt pretty good. About, you know, hey, you know, they, that, they've given us, you know, their best shot, especially with all of the guys, not just Terry, but they had a number of injuries. Scott, yeah. uh, I think they had a lineman or two go down as well. Um, you know, so th- it, it just felt like it was a matter of time before Penn State got its ducks in a row, as it's done in, in a number of games this season. Uh, you know, we've talked about it ad nauseum at this point about how good they've been at making halftime adjustments. And so, yeah, I just with all that in mind, it was hard to, to get too worked up about, you know, being down by two points at half. Yeah. And, you know, the second half then starts uh, Penn State's first drives a touchdown, second drives a touchdown, third drives a touchdown. And these touchdowns are coming on a uh, 34-yard touchdown pass to Chris Godwin, a 45-yard pass to Mike Gusecki that still was just ridiculous, a 54-yard pass to Chris Godwin. That vertical passing game really started to get things going for the Nittany Lions in the second half. Uh, Dan, I want to start with you. Uh, So was the vertical passing game the one thing that you thought really sparked Penn State in the second half? Or were there maybe some other things on defense, maybe another thing or two they were doing on offense that uh, that that made it seem like it wasn't just the passing game getting everything going? I think there was an error, and there sort of has been in, in most of the games, there's an error of inevitability that Penn State's going to get its big plays here and there. The number of them sort of varies a little bit, but they they take so many shots and they have so many guys that are pretty good at getting downfield and, you know, getting up for jump balls. You know, you just wait out for those one-on-one situations. Um, And against an an inexperienced secondary like Michigan State, that sort of – it just felt like it was a matter of time before that was going to happen. I think the the bigger switch was just the defense really – uh, locking things down in the second half, you know, whatever adjustments they made at halftime, you could see it from the first drive that Michigan State had the ball. Penn State was doing a better job controlling the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, those early down runs that in the first half Michigan State was, you know, ripping off four or five yards. Suddenly they weren't doing that anymore. They were getting more pressure. They, you know, they had some sacks in the third quarter that I think really set the tone that this was going to be a different game in the second half. And, you know, I, I, I felt very comfortable really just after a, a, a possession or two uh, that, that it was going to be a, a, an, easy, an easy path to victory at that point. Excellent. Uh, Len, uh, same question to you. What uh, did you – like, do you agree that it was the passing game and the defense really locking down? And is there maybe one uh, – there was one thing, maybe one moment in the second half that really made you go, okay, they're not playing around now. Here we go. I think a lot of the time this year, it's just been the talent level differential that Penn State just has more of the talent and it started to wear down and wear down. And you started to see that once they started connecting on those longer throws down the field and were able to were able to execute that a little bit better because they were just they were just able to bring in different guys, rotate guys, keep them fresh. And Michigan State just didn't have an answer for it. Yeah, uh, Matt. Same question to you. Please go as fast as possible because I want to talk about how much fun it was that Penn State ran the score up on Michigan State. I think everyone's really covered it. You know, you you mentioned the the moment where you know you kind of thought that okay, this is taken care of. I think it was 
the sequence of Michigan State punting on their first two possessions, Penn State responding with touchdowns in each one. And then Michigan State moves the ball a little bit, fumble. Two plays later, Penn State goes up 31-12, and, and the game's over at that point. Awesome. Let's get to the real fun thing that came from this one. Um, the fact that Penn State was really able to, at a certain point, say, yeah, we're done with you, but we're going to keep going at you anyway. Uh, of course, there was some uh, you know, sour taste in the mouth of a lot of Penn Staters, and it sounds like there was a bit of a sour taste in the mouth of James Franklin uh, from last year's game, which ended kind of a... You know, it was kind of gross watching Michigan State run the score up, get into position uh, to hand a ball off to an offensive lineman and have him run it in. It sounded like that was in the back of the team's mind the entire time uh, leading up to this week. And then next thing you know, Penn State is up 38-12. to 12. There's four minutes and 20 seconds left in the game. And then Trace McSorley is still in, just throwing. He threw one bomb down the field that was completed, Juwan Johnson. Uh, two more bombs down the field that didn't go much of anywhere, and then a touchdown pass to Andre Robinson. So just a ridiculous, ridiculous uh, ending sequence that if it was happening to Penn State, we'd probably all be kind of mad about it, but Penn State was doing it to someone else. Uh, Len, I want to know, what were your thoughts on Penn State seeming like it ran the score up a little bit on Michigan State? I had no problem with it whatsoever. I, I don't really believe in running up the score as a concept. I believe if you don't like it, stop it. And as much as it sucked to watch last year, you know, if you don't like it, stop it. And I know that the committee tells us that they they don't pay a lot of attention to uh, to um, differential and running up the score and stuff like that. But I'll believe that when I see it. So yes. if you have an opportunity to lay waste to someone, I think you're you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't take it. Yeah, you know what? I agree with that. Uh, I've always found it a little bit weird, especially when we're in a situation kind of like what we've seen at times at a Penn State this year where, you know, those backups are in and it's not a case of running up the score. They're just running the offense and Tommy Stevens and Miles Sanders and Andre Robinson just happen to be better than everyone else. But it was right. – it, it, it was – different but also kind of fun to watch McSorley still be out there slinging the ball over the place and really trying to send a statement one to Michigan State and one I would assume to the uh to the playoff committee and the you know David Pollock's of the world who don't seem to have much respect for this team uh when I when we just talked to you so I'm going to go to Matt now uh Matt what did you think about the whole run the score up thing like how satisfying was it watching Penn State do this after how last year's game ended. Oh, I, I agree with Len 100% that if you don't like it, stop it. But two reasons why I was totally in favor of it and I'm glad that they they took the chance to do it is I, I was in the press box last year for the game against Michigan State in East Lansing. And for whatever reason, there were a number of, of Michigan State fans or alumni or students or whoever that ended up in the, the Penn State section of the press box, as it were, and they were taking great joy in the way Michigan State ended that game. And two, just the opportunity to see Mark D'Antonio's face as there's, it's, this is happening and there's nothing he can do to stop it. And you know he knows why this is happening because he brought it upon himself last year. And then I, he had the quote after the game where essentially saying, you know, you know what they say about paybacks. And I don't yeah. know if he was speaking in regards to 
that, yeah, we had this coming, which seems unlikely or more likely that this is, they're going to pay for this next year or in two years or whenever. Um, it was just, it was the first time that I felt like Penn State really had a chance to take out their frustrations in a sense on a team that, um, you know, has really given it to them the last couple of years, um, especially with, with James Franklin here. And they had the opportunity to do it and they took it and it was just, it was, it was great. Cause I think it was a, uh, a measure of, of redemption and, a, you know, a rather obvious shot at a guy that, um, you did the same thing that Penn State a year ago and, you know, not to get too far off topic, I think has been a little bit of, um, one of those guys that Franklin's alluded to as a, as a negative recruiter, um, you know, off the, off the field in Mark D'Antonio, who, um, is, you know, he doesn't, doesn't take a whole lot of effort to look and see that he's Michigan state's one of those programs that, um, has made a run at guys. Penn state has either targeted and, and had commitments from, or been chasing too, yep. that, um, has had, had guys look around if nothing else, not necessarily getting them to, to flip necessarily. Yeah. And outside of, and we'll talk about this more, you know, around national signing day, but outside of Pitt. There is probably no program that needs Penn State to not be good as much as Michigan State. Michigan's going to be Michigan. Ohio State's going to be Ohio State. But that third spot in the Big Ten East where you know everyone thinks that for years Penn State has resided, Michigan State has moved into that, and Penn State is in a spot to get in competition with the big boys again. And if they get there and it takes away some of the shine in Michigan State, that's a big deal. So, yeah, I, uh, I actually hadn't thought of it as, uh, you know, Mark D'Antonio wants to try and get his revenge next year. I just took it as he was, you know, pulling an anti-Harbaugh and being like, yeah, you know what, they got us, whatever. Uh, but, Dan, I want to ask you your thoughts on this. Um, what, like, what did you think on Penn State running up the score? And on your second watch, were you thinking that, like, man, they're really just being shameless and going for this? Or... You know, did it not really seem like they were doing anything other than just trying to run their offense? Well, there's there are two different things at play here. I totally agree with the concept of, you know, keep running your offense, and if you don't like it, stop it. But there is a difference between that and doing it with, uh, with the starters still in at that point, which is what happened here, which is a little bit different than what they've done in other games because they have continued to run their offense in every game. Um but usually it's been with Tommy Stevens and some of the backup running backs and players like that getting into the game. This was different up until that last possession. Um, I, I I had no problem with it. Um, you know, D'Antonio, and I do think D'Antonio, I think I, I saw the full context of his quote, and he was referring to Franklin not being pleased with what they did last year um, when he said the thing about uh, paybacks. But, um, you know, he, D'Antonio had it coming. Not just for that, but for what uh, what Matt said, um, you know, about him potentially being involved in negative recruiting and everything. Glad to hear that uh, everybody's staying hydrated on the podcast right I, now. I am. Um, I'm doing my best. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but so I, I had no problem with it. I didn't take a, a ton of satisfaction of it because at that point it just seemed so easy. But um, I did like the – actually, my favorite play on that that one where they were clearly trying to run it up was not the bombs, but rather the one where you could tell that Moorhead was sort of toying with them 
and knew they were going to blitz and baited them with that and just threw that perfect, you know, ran that perfect play with the pass to Robinson across the middle against a blitz that goes for a touchdown. And I said, yeah. it's just one of those plays where you're like, man, they're, the Penn State's coaching staff is playing chess and Michigan State's playing checkers right now. Yeah, like, um, yeah. So I had a lot of satisfaction on that particular play. But overall, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't great, you know, because Michigan State's just a bad team at this point. But yeah. um, no, it was, I, I certainly had no problem from the, from a moral standpoint, I slept just fine. <laughs> I mean, I think we all probably <laughs> did. Uh, but yeah, I, that play to Robinson was just so delightfully disrespectful because the three plays preceding it were Trace is just going to try and throw the ball as far as he can and hope one of these, you know, monster six foot four wide receivers to come down with it. That then the play to Robinson, like, that's something that you know that they're going to be bringing to blitz either because you like had seen something in film or throughout the course of the game. And like you could tell that Moorhead probably just said to McSorley, like, okay, they're going to bring a blitz here, so run that play that we were talking about with Andre. And then Michigan State just had nobody back there. They like, I believe they just had like however many cornerbacks they had in the field. All their linebackers came, all their safeties came, and then Robinson just got in like without any issue. It was fantastic. And, and that's the advantage of the non-huddle thing is that they line up, let the defense show yeah. the cards, and then call the play. So yeah, exactly. You know, that that all goes back to you know the offense that Penn State runs under Moorhead is structured that way. So you get you get it that way by design, which is you know part of the appeal of the whole thing. Yeah, it it, it was fantastic and. Yeah, I mean, seeing, seeing Andre Robinson get that touchdown, like, knowing that he's been, wor- you know, working to get his way up the depth chart with Saquon and just the overall depth that uh, running back and seeing him, you know, get that opportunity. I wonder if maybe they let Saquon get that if he doesn't uh, bang up his ankle. But still, it was uh, it was cool, fun to watch. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's do MVPs from the game. Uh, Dan, we'll start with you. Um, it seems like McSorley is kind of the uh, default answer, but there's plenty of good reason for it. So would you pick McSorley or would you go in a different direction? Um, I'd, I mean, it's hard to argue against McSorley. There's certainly a good case for it. Um, I I think Godwin could be a good choice for it as well. He was kind of the key of uh, what their strategy ended up being in the second half there of uh, opening the top of the defense. Um, you know, he obviously was the recipient of two of those deep balls. I thought he played a nice game overall as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, just for the sake of maybe switching things up a little bit, I would say Godwin's probably my MVP. Awesome. Uh, Matt, who do you think? I think, like you said, McSorley is the obvious choice. My second choice would probably be Brandon Bell, who uh, was the Walter Camp Defensive Player of the Week, I believe is the official name of the award he was, or the honor he received earlier today, um, or earlier Sunday as we're recording this. Uh, um, I think 18 tackles is what he ended up putting down. He was kind of, um, you know, those four drives in the first half where Michigan State kind of went right down the field only to, you know, not only stall, but really, you know, go backwards in the red zone um, that all ended the field goals. He was kind of the ringleader there that um, stepped up and, and made several plays in those instances. Um, but he he's he was a, a solid runner up to Trace McSorley's um, absurd day of 376 yards passing on just 23 attempts. 
Yeah. Uh, and an interesting thing about Bell, he rarely plays as much as he did in that game. He usually only plays about two-thirds of the game. They they do a very good job of consistently making sure he gets uh, rest to keep him fresh. And that was this was really the first game I can recall where that was not the case. He played almost every snap, and they were on the field a lot because of how much Michigan State had the ball. It was a, a sort of out-of-character game for Bell in that sense and how much he was on the field. I think he played all, all but 11 snaps uh, of the game for, on Penn State's defense. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, snap counts right now, and it says he played 78 of 89 defensive plays. So that's... It's- you yeah. see those numbers from John Reed, Marcus Allen, Malik Golden, and Kabinda. You don't see them from a guy like Brandon Bell uh, pretty much ever. So it was a, an interesting turn of events, and you know it showed he, he was everywhere in the, on defense. So the, uh, Matt's exactly right. Yeah. Len, uh, what about yourself? I think I've got to go Trace as my official MVP, but I think I would be remiss if we didn't take this opportunity to talk about uh, Mike Gesicki and particularly, particularly that incredible touchdown catch that he had. had Play the game. I was I was watching the game. I was pretty chill out watching it. You know, very um, letting the game come to me. But that that play, I got out of my got out of my seat, started jumping up and down. It's kind of you monster, you monster. That was. (laughs) I, I'm. I might actually watch the Monday night uh, football pregame tomorrow just to see if uh, if Randy Moss attempts to pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> oh, that'll be it. That'll be an adventure. Yeah, I mean, for how much I love Randy Moss, uh, pronunciation very much is not his strong suit, which I could say is someone who's now Matt, Matt yeah. Millen has pole position on that because he always says <laughs> Jasicki. <laughs> Despite having been doing Penn State games for three years now, and with all play-by-play partners he's always had, always getting the name right, he still can't get it. But <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, fine. Come back to the top for you, Randy Moss. Yeah, uh, I was going to say Bell. Um, I mean, eighteen tackles all over the place. Uh, played a ton. Uh, he's one of the. He's the heart and soul of this defense. I and mean, we've said this over and over again, but. When this defense is really going, it's because Brandon Bell is just flying all over the place and making plays. Uh, but I want to give, uh, like, I, I just have to talk about Trace McSorley. He, like, there's one thing between, like, like what we've said all of his flaws are and then what he's actually able to do. And we saw the one thing that we've been concerned about with him, which is, consistent accuracy on the deep ball. Even when balls weren't being hauled in, like that bomb you threw to Irvin Charles on the final drive, that just hit Charles in the head. That was a great throw. And that was more on Charles than it probably was on McSorley. Uh, his throw to Gesicki was ridiculous. Some of the throws he was making to Godwin were just fantastic. He was taking advantage of the fact that, uh, I was talking to someone about this last night, but Michigan State's thing is, that's a program that is used to having some really, really good cornerbacks. I mean, they had Trey Waynes a few years ago. They had Dark West Dennard a few years ago. They don't really have the kind of cornerbacks who they can throw them out there one-on-one in man coverage and just lock a dude down, which then opens up things for their defensive line and their linebackers and their safeties with whatever they want to do with their safeties to get pressure on the quarterback. And we saw McSorley take advantage of that time and time again. I mean, dude went 17 for 23. I believe in the third quarter, his line was, I remember looking at this in the stadium. It was something like 
six for six with 150 some odd yards. He was just having a ridiculous game. And it's the kind of game that gives you confidence uh, heading into a game against a team like Wisconsin, where with how good their front is, you probably have to throw the ball a little bit to beat them. Uh, but we'll talk about that actually a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but that's mostly because I just cannot wait to talk about the Big Ten this week because we have to talk about how Jim Harbaugh uh, actively sabotaged Michigan at times. But before we get to that, uh, Friday night, Iowa just destroyed Nebraska. Uh, I didn't get a chance to watch uh, too much of this. Did any of you guys get that chance? I did not, no. Dan, when? I, uh, I was flipping back and forth between this and the Apple Cup. Uh, oh, the Apple Cup. Yeah. I, I can't believe we were all let down by a Mike Leach defense. Uh, <laughs> Imagine that. But yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't believe we actually let ourselves get tricked into thinking that a Mike Leach defense would help us. But yeah. that's a whole other discussion. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Nebraska needed to win this game uh, if it wanted to have any shot at winning uh, the Big Ten West. Uh, Minnesota actually made it look uh, a little bit interesting for a while uh, before Wisconsin was able to pull away. Uh, but 40 to 10, uh, Iowa just just smoked the Cornhuskers. Tommy Armstrong didn't have a very good game, which always makes me sad. I mean, I've been watching him since 97, and he's been known to have one or two of these every now and then. Uh, Lashawn Daniels, Akram Wadwi just ran all over the Cornhusker defense. Uh, I don't have too much to say about that, so let's talk about Michigan losing. Uh, the Wolverines uh, went into Columbus. Um, Wilton Spate played all right. They weren't able to run the ball especially well. And next thing you know, Ohio State won a game. Uh, and Matt, I'll start with you. Like I don't think that really at any point getting into like the fourth quarter or so, I felt comfortable in Ohio State winning this game because it just didn't seem like their offense was able to do anything against Michigan. The one thing, and I'm going to try and keep this short because if you let me talk about this, I'll take up the next half hour That's because right, I baby. believe I, I, I have thoughts on Michigan blowing this game. But the one thing that kind of gave me hope, and I said something to the uh, people I was watching the game with, that Michigan just let Ohio State hang around enough where it felt like one of those games where they were going to look back at some point and regret all the points they left on the board. Yep. Um, you know, field goals, the field goal instead of the touchdown, the fumble on the goal line, obviously the two interceptions that Spate threw. Ohio State wasn't able to do virtually anything offensively without Wilton Spate giving them the ball, either throwing a touchdown to them or setting them up with the short field that I know we'll get to how that got even shorter here in a minute. But... <laughs> Michigan, and, and uh, jumping ahead a little bit, all the disdain and venom coming the officiating crew's way from, from Michigan men far and wide, which is so <laughs> incredibly ironic that we need to have a whole other podcast on that alone. Michigan only has themselves to blame here. They dominated that game, um, you know, were able to move the ball much more effectively um, against Ohio State than the Buckeyes did against Michigan. Um they cost themselves that game. Yes, there were some officiating decisions that um, you certainly can question, and the lack of penalties on Ohio State are certainly a little little odd. But Michigan had plenty of chances to put that game away well before 
fourth down spots and missed pass interference calls. Um, it's it, it's it's mind blowing to, to think that um, you know, Ohio State played as poorly as they did for about fifty minutes in that game, and you know here we are talking about them you know, locking up a playoff spot. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seemed like at some time in the fourth quarter, JT Barrett said, "You know what? I'm done with all of this. Like, I'm done with uh, Ohio us not being able to move the ball on the ground or through the air." I'm going to start running a little bit more. I'm going to start just making some ridiculous throws. And when it seemed like to me that once Ohio State uh, really started doing much of anything on offense, Michigan just went, wait, no, this isn't what's supposed to happen. And they, it seemed like folded. Yeah, we've seen that Michigan hasn't handled or hasn't dealt with much adversity yet this year. But when they do deal with it, they don't handle it particularly well. Once, yeah, once Ohio State started getting their act together and realizing that they could actually move the football on this defense if they just kept at it, Michigan didn't really have much of an answer for it. Yeah, and it was, like, it's weird because Michigan, the one thing they've had in their corner all year above everything else was outside of Wilton Spate. Basically, everyone is a senior. This is a team that you did not expect to crumble under essentially any circumstance, and that's just what happened. It seemed like they, um, it, it seemed like they started playing tight. And Dan, uh, we've like, like there have been some some people who've said, you know, when I coach, I like the coach not getting too uptight because I think that's a reflection of how my players play. If they see me getting nervous, they start getting nervous. Uh, and Jim Harbaugh proved that absolutely true on Sunday, uh, Saturday. Are, are you telling me? <laughs> what, what, Dan, Dan, are you telling me that... It, whatever you're about to say, yes, I am telling you that. Are you telling me that a team coached by literal sociopath, Jim <laughs> Harbaugh, <laughs> might, not have, might not have been the epitome of composure? I don't, it, I don't buy it for a second. And, and I do think I, I, I want to say one quick thing about uh, Michigan as well. Um, that is that um, had they won the game, it would not have counted because if you beat Ohio State after they screw up on special teams, it doesn't count as we know. <laughs> so yes, I think that's yes. part of the frustration that Jim Harbaugh had too. But um, I, it's just even if I had no rooting interest. If I was just a you know neutral on it, just as a Penn State fan, and Penn State you know had no uh, implications in this game, I would have been pulling for Ohio State because I you know I, I'm not a big Urban Meyer fan, but my God, who could possibly root for Jim Harbaugh? Yeah, I, what, what what makes you watch that guy march around like a raving lunatic and go, that's the kind of guy I want to I want to follow. That's the that, that's the kind of uh, <laughs> kind of human being that I admire. Um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking this nearly as seriously as I think it's coming off, but I just, it's, it's hysterical to me that there is this, this level of respect given to him because he's won some football games that where he's just like the epitome of, I'm saying epitome twice now, because I think I, I read some John Rothstein tweets earlier, <laughs> um, but he called some. He called. Said he keeps saying "epitome" about everything. And now it's it's rubbing off on me. It's no, a disaster. But well, you, um, but he, what does he say? It's all about like whenever a team loses, it's the epitome of something. 
Like, it's if you, if you lose a bye game, it's the epitome of brutality. But now he's got a new one, which is a team that has a lot of assists. Uh, it ha- is the epitome of efficiency. That was his new one today. Um, so it, 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 it's somebody needs to buy that man a thesaurus. But he, he called uh, uh, he called someone uh, two days ago epitome of a glue guy. Um, and yeah, them just a lot of epitome of brutality. Oh, uh, Duke doesn't have a pure point guard on its roster. Kansas has two. Something's got to give it MSG. Palpable buzz, the epitome. Jesus Christ. The next basketball pod, we will dedicate 10 oh. minutes to reading John Rothstein's tweets. Yeah, you could say that uh, Jim Harbaugh's rage level on that offsides call was off the charts. <laughs> but, um, no, but he, what, I, what I was going to say was Harbaugh, just every negative stereotype about football coaches, it, it all goes back to all the kind of nonsense that Jim Harbaugh is always in. And just, and like he's the boy who cried wolf with the officiating because he reacts like that to every single call that goes against Michigan. Yeah. And then he expects people to take him seriously. Like, geez, get a hold of yourself. But, you know, I digress kind of when I – well, I was digressing really when I was talking about John Rothstein. But. <laughs> yeah. Dan, you said literal sociopath. And since you've said that about three minutes ago, I've been staring at that picture from Ruth's Chris that he tweeted after, I guess, the <laughs> Rutgers game where he's got this big old cut of steak in front of him and this giant 12-ounce glass of milk. And he's just beaming at the camera like, I can't wait to tuck into this glass of milk. Can can we talk real quick about um, Urban Meyer's wife, Shelly, calling into the press conference after the game (laughs) and telling Urban to pick up a gallon of milk on the way home? Yes. Like, Shelly deserves a huge, uh, huge applause for that. That was fantastic. And also deserving applause um, are our friends at Eleven Warriors. Uh, because as Harbaugh was deciding to scorch the earth, uh, probably because he knows the, this is the second to last game, if not the last game he will coach at Michigan before taking the Indianapolis Colts job, uh, they tweeted out a tweet that just said, practice what you preach, and it was a screen grab of uh, Harbaugh, a tweet from February 10th, 2016, where he said, question of the day, does anyone find whining to be attractive? Just curious. And if I remember... Which was patently absurd at the time. Because that was was for the satellite camp thing, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So he was... And like, whatever. Like, Nick Saban was getting way too mad because he wanted to have a recruiting advantage down south. Whatever, I get that. Jim Harbaugh, um, he could have said this in the media for whatever reason. He decided he was going to tweet about it, and he got a bunch of retweets. And, you know, a bunch of people just lost their minds because it's Jim Harbaugh just being a wild and crazy guy on social media. But as it turns out, that wild and craziness also extends to the football field, where at one point uh, there was an offside call that went against Michigan, uh, I believe. And you were correct. Correct. And got flagged. It's five yards. It's the most innocuous penalty in football. Five yards, usually... And it was the right call. Yeah, and it was the right call. It wasn't call. even yes. close. It wasn't even like, yeah. a, like a questionable decision. And Big Ten do... championship is rigged. Yes. Sad. Sad. <laughs> uh, Dan, that is, that is for another podcast. Uh, but yeah, usually when that happens, you brush yourself off. Maybe you pull the kid who jumped offside over to the sideline. You know, you pat them on the shoulder pads a few times and say, you got to make sure you don't do that again. And they go, okay, coach. And then you just play another down. 
Jim Harbaugh decided that that was not the course of action that was appropriate for the situation and decided that he was just going to start throwing things to the point that even Herb Street and uh, Fowler are up in the booth going, hey, uh, so Jim, you may get penalized for that. And they were expecting him to get a sideline warning. They just gave him an unsportsmanlike 15 yards, two or three plays later, Ohio State scores. So Jim Harbaugh getting mad literally cost Michigan seven points that Ohio State scored. And by the way, this game went into overtime. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I... He was mad, yeah. And and now that I think about it, there are some parallels there, you know, with, uh, with him... And a certain presidential campaign. I'm surprised that some of the Michigan men uh, weren't on Twitter calling the referees cucks. <laughs> Actually, uh, uh, I little, Harbaugh I, goes on Twitter last last night at three o'clock in the morning, is ranting about a sex tape or something. I don't know what it was. Very weird. Not for nothing. Some of the commenters on MGo blog seem to uh, seem to be where you're at on this, Dan, and we're. Someone jumped into the comments and suggested that actually the uh, this was on the fourth down call, that the spot was fine and the officiating was fine and basically got called a cuck. So yeah, can they, we, were right there. they were ready for it. Yeah, can we talk about that fourth down call? Um, one, I mean, Urban Meyer did a very admirable Bill O'Brien impression by going for it on fourth down when all you needed was a field goal in an overtime game against Michigan. Uh, but... I mean, he ran basically the only play you can run in that situation. But, I mean, I thought he probably got it by forward progress. I mean, I remember I was watching in my gut, um, my, you know, three-and-a-half-hour Ohio State fandom aside, said he got that. Uh, did, did either of you guys think that was, you know, an egregiously terrible call that warranted freak-out upon freak-out by Michigan men across the globe? All right, so I think he was short, but it's also if you've watched football at all, you know on these these ones where it's really close in the replay, they go with the call on the field. And I said that at the time, I go, I don't think he made it, but as soon as they gave him the spot, I go, they can't overturn that. Yeah. It's so close. So it, so it, I mean, if if it the the scripts were flipped, the Michigan people would all have been like, oh, there's no way you can overturn that. It was so yeah. nakedly about the fact that it was going against them. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it was, I think as, as you know, and I, I wouldn't call myself really a neutral party, but I, I thought it was short and I thought it was going to remain the call in the field. I, I just had a hard time looking at that and saying, you know, there's enough evidence there to overturn it. Because in the room I was watching with a bunch of Penn State fans, it was like a 50-50 split on whether or not we agreed he got it or not. So it was, it was I mean, more than anything that I can recall, a very obvious case where you just have to go with the call in the field because there's not enough there to overturn. Yeah. Well, and even watching watch it in real time, um, you know, I, at that point I had it moved off uh, off the big screen onto the second TV down in my basement, but I'm, I'm obviously staring closer at that game than the Penn State game, and in real time it looked like he got it, and I, you know, when you break it down, to, you know, the frame by frame that they were doing on the instant replay, like you said, Dan, it was so close. I don't even, yeah. I don't know how you. And then, and then of course, you I, I thought he, it, was, it was painfully obvious that from where he was watching that he was short. I in real time, I thought he was short, and I, because I, I, I distinctly remember yelling like, "Oh no, he's short!" Because I, I it just it looked to me like he he didn't get it. Um, but again, like I said, 
both live and on the replay, there was disagreement in the room I was in over whether or not he got it or not. So it, it was certainly uh, you had to just go with whatever they called, and it was a, a very tough call. It just you know yeah. it's a shame that it, that was you know the toughest you know call of the day happened to be on the biggest play of the day. Really, yeah. Well, back uh, to what I said earlier, was, you know, Michigan had plenty of chances before to not let it come down to that, and you know the same thing that we've been told as Penn State fans over the years, and. I've said ad nauseum, you know, don't don't put yourself in a position where one call is going to decide the game like yeah. that. Take the ref, take try and take the referees out of the out of the equation as much as you can. I mean, there was it, literally a drive for Ohio State where they ran the ball with their punter on fourth and sixth from their nineteen yard line. Like Ohio State was like. Urban Meyer, for how good of a coach he is, he wasn't exactly putting on a coaching clinic in this one. And Michigan was able to turn that into points, but you go down like they're just play after play where Michigan gets the ball in generally not terrible field position, and they're just not able to do anything with it. Or uh, Ohio State does something like miss a field goal, and on the next drive, Michigan punts the football. Like, just some really not great football out of Michigan to the point that, yes, when you put it so the refs are going to be in a position to make a, to decide this game, you look back on things like the drives where they didn't score or how they didn't get more points despite Ohio State missing a couple of field goals or the fact that you gave them 15 yards because your coach, you know, carries himself like a four-year-old on the sidelines and all of it thank god it happened because now penn state's playing for a conference championship but it's the kind of thing where if you're a michigan fan like you're going to look back on this in a few weeks or a few months and go hey you know what like that game was there for the taking we should have taken it and then you're going to say this in an mgo blog comment section to be called the football cuck so <laughs> so yeah, um, let's skip Minnesota Wisconsin for a second. Um, our friends over at Crimson Quarry were probably very excited because Indiana beat Purdue. I watched exactly none of this game, but I saw it ended twenty six to twenty four. Um, did anyone watch a second of this? I not did at not. All. But uh, Purdue was leading at one point late in the game, so so that's a thing. Yeah, I'm looking uh, right now in the second half. Uh, in the third quarter, Purdue scored six points. Indiana scored zero. And then in the fourth quarter, Purdue scored two points and Indiana scored nine. So I don't know what else to expect. It, it um, seems really obvious now that you mention it that Purdue would have had a game this weekend. But to be honest, I had no idea that they even played. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, Illinois Northwestern. Again, I'm guessing nobody watched that. Pass. Northwestern, yeah, fine. Mean, Illinois, bad. <laughs> like, I know it's the last day of the regular season, like, all these other teams played. I just, like, until now, I didn't even, you know, think about it. Like, like, you, like at no point were you going, hey, you know what? I bet Indy, Illinois is playing football this weekend because, like, there were exactly, once Nebraska and Iowa ended, there were two games that ended mattered in the Big Ten this week. So all your focus and attention is on those. So I'm guessing that none of you uh, paid attention to the fact that Maryland and Rutgers played. I didn't even know the final of this one until two minutes ago when I saw that Maryland won 31-13, to despite the fact that Maryland is not a good football team, because Rutgers is just that bad. 
Hey, that would be bowl-eligible Maryland, Bill. Let's show them the proper respect. Technically, uh, Maryland <laughs> ran for 318 yards on Rutgers. Uh, Rutgers, oh my goodness, you must have been feeling real frisky. You must have been feeling real frisky. You got 350 yards of total offense. Good for you. And you didn't get blown out in time of possession. My goodness. Uh, They went 7 for 18 on third down, only 3 for 25 on penalties, one turnover. Like, what happened to the Rutgers team that I know and love? This is amazing. I I saw that coming from a mile away that Maryland was going to be a a bowl-eligible team as soon as they uh, roughed up Howard in week one. Yeah, I agree. Well, in fairness, uh, Michigan State roughed up Furman in week one, and they're on about the same level playing field in Michigan State. (laughs) They they did not rough up Furman. That was was a close game to the very very end. What was it, 28-13? Yeah, it was was closer than that, though. Michigan State scored late to, uh, to make it mildly interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's end with uh, Wisconsin against Minnesota, thirty-one to seventeen. The Badgers, Penn State, will end up playing them this weekend in Indianapolis. Uh, future first-round pick Mitch Leidner, I think, hurt his draft stock a little bit. Um, he he may go late first round, potentially even the beginning of the second round now, because he went nine for twenty-six with one touchdown and four interceptions. Uh, the big thing from this one, uh, Matt, Alex Hornibrook had to leave the game. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why. It sounded like he was just a little bit roughed up. Uh, but if he's not able to go, while Bart Houston is a very capable backup, I mean, Hornibrook hasn't been a world beater or anything like that, but he is been the kind of quarterback who just makes plays when he has to make plays and is able to you know, survive behind a really good offensive line and a really good running game. So, like, what's your, uh, like, what were you feeling when you heard that Alex Hornerbrook had to leave and that there was a chance, even though now it doesn't seem like that's the case, that Bart Houston would have to leave the, lead the Badgers into Indy? Uh, I have a theory about Wisconsin that applies to the, that question, where they have a lab somewhere on campus in Madison where they clone and create quarterbacks, running backs, and left tackles. Because I'm pretty sure Bart Houston might be the same guy as Alex Hornerbrook, and it might even be Joel Stav, and just keep going back and back in the great lineage of, of Badger quarterbacks. Um, uh, yeah, yes, losing your starting quarterback is a big deal, but Houston's played a fair amount this year. I'm looking at the stats right now. He's actually uh, attempted 108 passes to Hornerbrook's 179, so it's not yeah. like he's, he's untested. Um, he actually has a slightly better quarterback rating, you know, whatever that's worth. But the the Badger offense goes the way of Corey Clement and and the running game. Um, yes, the quarterback is, you know, they call on him to to make that big play, and Hornerbrook's been able to do it for the most part this year. Um, but I don't think that the status of their starting quarterback is really, um, you know, something that Penn State fans should should grasp onto as oh, hey, Hornerbrook's out. You know, we've got a real chance now. I I don't think that. Whoever ends up um, starting at quarterback for Wisconsin is going to have is going to be the, the player that decides the game. And if it is, then um, I like our chances. Whether it's Hornerbrook or Houston, I don't think it matters. If the game's put in, put in, on the shoulders of, of the Wisconsin quarterback, then Penn State's done what they wanted to do in taking the, the running game out of out of the picture. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's actually uh, talk about just how we're feeling heading into this week. Uh, Len, let's start with you. Uh, Penn State 
playing for a Big Ten championship against a tough Wisconsin team. They beat LSU. Uh, they played Michigan on the road tough. You know, a tough game against Ohio State. This is a good, solid football team. So how do you feel going into uh, this, I just over this week and heading into this weekend, just with regards to the Big Ten? I feel pretty good. Um, I think I will... I reserve the right to modify that answer based on Barkley's health. Yeah. But I, I generally feel pretty good. I went back and looked at, at, at Wisconsin's schedule a little bit this year and to see how they got to 10 and 2. And uh, we've talked at great length about how disgusting their schedule has been. And it has been. But the number of those tentpole wins on their schedule don't look necessarily as impressive as they did at the time. Yeah. For instance, for instance, LSU kind of not as great as we thought they were earlier in the year. They beat, uh, when they beat Michigan state, Michigan state was still ranked. I believe when they, um, when they beat Nebraska, Nebraska was number nine and they've kind of fallen off and their two probably most impressive games of the year. They lost. So, I know the I know Wisconsin's a very good team, but I'm not I'm not feeling afraid. Interesting, um, Dan. Let's go to you. But instead of talking about uh, just the Big Ten, just in the college football playoff hunt, uh, Penn State. Like I've been trying my hardest to say, y'all got to be prepared for the fact that Penn State is going to be behind Ohio State, and Ohio State's going to get preference, but. Depending on how far Michigan falls, like there's a chance that Penn State maybe moves up, but you know probably not. Um, if Penn State beats Wisconsin, it's going to be in a really good position to get the number four seed. If one of the Pac-12, either the Pac-12 champion is someone other than Washington, or the ACC champion is someone other than Clemson. So, with regards to the playoff picture, how do you feel? Like, what do you think Penn State's chances are? of making the playoff going into this week? Well, I mean, it, I think it's clear at this point. I, I I think a lot of people that are talking about it, it's still being a mess, are, are the people who think that uh, a big win against Wisconsin makes them hop over Ohio State, and I just don't think that's the case. I think Alabama and Ohio State are locked in there, so then it's between the Big Ten champion and uh, Washington and Clemson. So it's it's very simple. You need one of those two teams to lose and for you to beat Wisconsin. Um, you know, and I. what are the odds of that? I, you know, I'd say I'm not feeling great about it. I th- I'm, I'm uh, sort of at the point where I've kind of accepted the, the idea that, um, you know, Penn State's, uh, you know, not in great position to get into the playoff. I think uh, the great thing is that they have such a tough opponent here that they they can have tunnel vision and just be like, you know, it's all on the line. Focus on Wisconsin because there's plenty to win, uh, you know, just by beating them, even if you can't make the playoff. So I don't I'm not worried about the team getting distracted. But um, as a fan, you know, thinking about the playoff and everything, I just think that it's it's tough to to try to rely on a, a Colorado upset of Washington at this point. You know, we, I've, I've, I've danced that one before there with Washington state and they let me down. I'm not, I'm yes. not, uh, I'm not getting my hopes up again here, even if well, I, I think Colorado is a better team than Wazoo. Yeah. Uh, Matt, let me go to you with a, a hypothetical that I find pretty interesting. Let's say, uh, well, we'll, we'll go with Virginia tech, uh, beating, 
uh, beating Clemson because Virginia Tech is worse than Colorado. So I'd say Virginia Tech beats Clemson. That means the three teams in the playoff for sure, and Washington, they end up beating Colorado. Alabama is the one seed. Ohio State's the two team. Washington is the three seed. That four seed is fascinating because Clemson is, for the most part, going to be out of it, but I think you can make something moderately resembling a case for them to get it. Penn State, if Penn State wins, is going to be right there. The winner of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State's going to be right there. And then there's Michigan, which we don't know too much about them right now and what the committee is going to think of them after the loss to Ohio State. But I think there's a very real chance that Michigan maybe only falls to five this week and is the team that appears to be in the best position to get that four spot if something crazy happens. So let's say Clemson loses, Alabama, Ohio State, Washington. Is Penn State that fourth team, or do one of those other teams worry you? The the one that probably worries me, and I don't I don't know why they're the one that worries me the most is Michigan. Uh, I guess I do know why it's because they beat Penn State by thirty nine points in a game that wasn't even that close. Um, but I I think what's going to happen in that scenario is when the rankings come out Tuesday, I'm guessing Michigan's probably going to be number five. Um, That's probably fair. And, and which which seems totally fair. You know they they beat Wisconsin and Penn State who will be um, will be right behind them in six and seven. But what we have to keep in mind, one, is the committee doesn't try and forecast, so they're not that, – that is, with the information that they have as of 7 o'clock on Tuesday night, that, that's their, their rankings. I think what's going to happen is Penn State or Wisconsin is going to win that game, and that team will leap over Michigan just by virtue of having the conference championship in what I think we would all agree is probably, the, from top to bottom at least – the best conference in in the country this well, year. Well, well, calm down because by football, uh, by S and P Plus, uh, the Big Ten, at least as of last week, had two of the eight worst teams in college football. So, okay, well, well, top two number mid tier, well, yeah, top to mid tier, I'd say. I mean, yeah, 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 and we've gone through this discussion as we've we've done the power rankings all year on the site, but but I digress. Um, I think in that scenario, if Oklahoma beats Oklahoma State, I think the Sooners have a, a claim as a two-loss conference champion. Um, and I, I think Michigan is going to find themselves in the outside looking in regardless because they're going to be a two-loss team without even a division championship. They can't even claim the shared division title like, like Ohio State can. Um, in Oklahoma's case, uh, they got run off their own field by Ohio State. Um, they got pretty thoroughly controlled by Houston on a neutral site game. And I'm not sure what their their best win is in that case. You know, a top ten to fifteen Oklahoma State or or West Virginia team, um, talent wise. But but then you go back to the the you know, not looking at resumes, but looking at you know the eye test is you know do you watch Oklahoma and say they're better than Penn State? I, I I'm just throwing all sorts of scenarios out there. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I I think in that in the the, the situation you laid out that you would see Alabama against the Big Ten champion and Clemson against Ohio State, or uh, Washington against Ohio State, I'm sorry. Um, but there's really, once you get past that third team, there are five or six teams that probably could lay a pretty substantial claim to that fourth spot. Um, you're, you're picking from a, a bunch of flawed teams, um, and you're trying to figure out which one has the, the best flaw, in a sense. 
Yeah, which one would make for the most compelling game against Alabama? Which um, <laughs> which is a totally unfair question to ask. <laughs> Probably Michigan, just because I think their defense, you know, as we've seen all year, you know, even in their their two losses, has been really good. Um, but you know, I think whoever plays them is going to be at least a two touchdown underdog playing in Atlanta on the West too. Oh God! Yeah, as our uh, as friend of the site Sam Cooper of uh, Doctor Saturday. Uh, tweet it out and he retweets like twice a week and every time I laugh uh, it will be interesting to see which team gets the chance to get destroyed by Alabama and um, mm. like like there is that little part of me in the back of my head that is going yeah this is all cool but do you really want to watch Penn State lose 56 to nothing to Alabama which isn't because Penn State is bad or anything like that it's just Alabama is a death machine, the likes of which we haven't seen since like army in the 1940s. So, um, I am so sick of them. Yeah. I don't blame <laughs> you. Like it, it, like Peter has been the guy, he was the guy who said this and it was the reason why I've what like, and I've latched onto this because I, it, it's pretty accurate, but for years when Alabama would beat teams, those games would be like 13 to 9, 16 to 10, and they're never quite as close as that scoreline could indicate. But Alabama's offense would just be this gross slog led by A.J. McCarron or John Parker Wilson. At least now with Nick Saban, they have, with uh, Lane Kiffin, they have like the decency to beat the living hell out of teams also to make it a watchable mauling instead of a, you know, oh, God, they're playing LSU and the final score is going to be one team scores nine and the other team doesn't. So Maybe the only program in all of college football where adding Lane Kiffin improves your likability. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, okay, so I'm about to ask a very important question. Would Lane Kiffin, Michigan head coach, be better or worse in terms of likability than Jim Harbaugh, Michigan head coach? Wow. For I mean, for me, it's an obvious answer because I, I love that Lane Kiffin and he's just an unrepentant jackass. So, like, I respect that as opposed to Harbaugh who's like, I'm infallible. And, and, yeah. I, and I think Harbaugh is, is a better overall coach too. So oh, it would be I, more no, – it would no be question. better also from the standpoint that, you know, you get to see Kiffin freaking out about Penn State beating Michigan. Yes. Um. So no, that's it's an interesting question. They, they're they're but you're right. They're two different types of uh, overbearing, un- intolerable personalities. Yes. Um, I I do want to see this because I want to see the Michigan man deal with Lane Kiffin. That's oh that's a, that's a oh, level. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. the, that's the whole but, thing. And, and you guys know I I live 20 minutes from Ann Arbor, and watching that up close would be absolutely fascinating. Uh, you weren't there for Michigan head coach Rich Rodriguez, correct? No, I moved up here right after he got fired. So because, I actually, I, oddly yeah. enough, met Brady Hoke within a couple of weeks of him okay. being hired in his giant dinner plate-sized hands. <laughs> yeah, be- <laughs> because Wayne Kiffin would basically be Rich Rodriguez, except he wouldn't be able to do the slime ball Rich Rodriguez. I'm going to at least make it seem like I care about the rich people of the program for 10 minutes thing. Like, he would just be there and he basically, like, tell all the rich 
boosters with the money who he knows just hate him on principle to screw themselves and it would be fantastic but this is this is something we need to explore when we're not an hour deep into a podcast uh so on that note i think this is as good of a time as i need to pull the plug on this one uh so uh yeah guys all of you thank you for filling in for nick who his like he has like a sore throat or something from screaming or Whatever. So yeah, thanks for coming on. To He's all not of a you. gamer. Uh. <laughs> oh Dan. Yeah, that, we 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 pay Dan the big bucks to come on the podcast and you know part partake in silliness. So I'm glad we were able to get a return. On I, our I didn't ever think that I would get on a podcast and talk about cucks, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever does, Dan. No one ever does. Oh man. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening to the Penn State InfoWars podcast. Um, uh, <laughs> make sure you follow us on all of our social media platforms at RLR Blog on Twitter. Uh, like us on Facebook, Roar Lions Roar. Buy some shirts. We got some really cool tutties gear out there. Uh, we're going to hopefully be sending uh, an order to our printer sometime soon. So make sure you get in there and put your orders in now. Uh, we have sweatshirts now. We have shirts. We have all, you know, all the hits with our T-shirts. Uh, all that stuff. Want to get that to you. Want to get that out there so people can walk around and support the site. Uh, keep reading. Keep sharing, commenting. Subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Leave us some reviews there. And yeah. Thank you again very much for listening. For Dan Smith, for Len D'Amico, for Matt DeBear, I am Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.